We are back, continuing our reading by David Talbot from his new book, The Devil's Chessboard. Bill Harvey was an odd choice for Rome station chief. He spoke no Italian, and he had no affinity for the Italian people or interest in their history and culture. A gruff, bulbous man with a frog-like voice, he was born and raised in a small Indiana town and had none of the cosmopolitan polish of his Ivy League-bred CIA colleagues. Harvey began his intelligence career as an FBI gumshoe, but his hard-drinking habits did not go down well in J. Edgar Hoover's stern nanny culture, and he jumped ship for the newly formed CIA in 1947. The blunt-spoken, pistol-packing Harvey was not a good fit with the CIA either, but the agency would find ways to put him to use. Dulles and Helms thought he had, quote, a cop mentality. Harvey, in turn, dismissed the CIA's upper echelons as Fifth Avenue cowboys and namby-pambies. He was no hayseed, he felt obliged to remind his colleagues. He had been raised by a single mother who became a full professor at Indiana State University, and he had a law degree. He liked to rattle the agency's Ivy League types during meetings by pulling out one of the many guns he owned, spinning the cylinder, and checking the load as if he were about to use it. This is another theme, by the way, uh, of the book, is sort of a class analysis of the CIA, which is also, I think, very important to understanding the operation and how it worked. In 1962, Richard Helms, who along with Angleton had replaced the retired Dulles as Harvey's main patrons at the agency, promoted the agency tough guy, naming head of the CIA's entire Cuba operation, Task Force W. Helms and Harvey kept much of the operation, including their assassination efforts against Castro, a secret from President Kennedy, as well as from CIA Director McCone. Harvey grew deeply contemptuous of the Kennedy brothers, whom he regarded as rich boys who were playing with the nation's security. He concluded that their subversion program aimed at overthrowing Castro's regime, codenamed Operation Mongoose, was all for show. Harvey thought so little of the man JFK put in charge of Mongoose, Air Force officer Edward Lansdale, that he would lift his ass in the middle of meetings and let loose farts, or pull out a big knife and begin to trim his nails. Harvey came to hate Bobby Kennedy most of all the CIA overseer who was constantly nipping at his heels. RFK browbeat Harvey so severely during one White House meeting on Cuba that Max Taylor later told the Attorney General, you could sack a town and enjoy it. Harvey took to calling RFK that f***er and began suggesting that some of the Attorney General's actions bordered on treason. Bobby Kennedy and my husband were absolute enemies, just pure enemies, recalled C.G. Harvey in her retirement home. Harvey's widow at that point, channeling her husband's deep resentments years later. Bobby was an idiot, and he had no confidence in himself because his brother put him in a job that he really wasn't capable of, of handling. It made for a lot of stress for the people who were working in law enforcement, end quote. The boiling feelings between the two men finally exploded in October 1962 when Harvey schemed with the Pentagon to send a series of raiding parties into Cuba at the height of the missile crisis to pave the way for the U.S. military invasion that administration hardliners hoped was imminent. RFK was outraged by Harvey's reckless behavior as the world teetered precariously on a nuclear powder keg. You were dealing with people's lives, the younger Kennedy brother later exclaimed, and then you're going to go off with a half-assed operation like this? Harvey's protectors acted quickly before Bobby Kennedy could ax him. Helms realized that he would have to relieve Harvey of the Cuba command and hustle him out of Washington. Giving him Rome was Angleton's brainstorm. Angleton thought the CIA station there had gone soft and was not doing enough to snoop on Soviet skullduggery in the Eternal City, or working hard enough to block the opening to the left. 
Harvey's ruthlessness had not played well with the Kennedys in Washington, but it was just what Jim Angleton wanted in Rome. Helms and Angleton did not bother telling McCone about Harvey's new assignment until it was a fait accompli. They knew that McCone was, quote, something of a snob and a Puritan, in the words of one aide, the kind of executive who liked to keep his hands clean. And the down and dirty Harvey, quote, just wasn't his cup of tea. By keeping McCone out of the loop on the Harvey transfer, the Dulles man demonstrated once again who was really running the CIA. Many imperial agents of America would have regarded Rome as a dream assignment, but Harvey and his wife never took to Italy. They were, quote, very fond of Germany and they didn't like anything about Rome, said one CIA officer. Bill despised the Italian people, whom he called goddamn wops. C.G. complained about being constantly cheated by the locals whenever she went to the market, and she couldn't get used to navigating through the narrow cobblestone streets in the family's hulking Ford station wagon. Once, when C.G. was driving her daughter Sally and the daughter of another CIA officer along the ancient Appian Way on their way to the beach, she snarled, I just don't understand why they don't bulldoze all this and make it a freeway. Like her husband, who would sit with his back to the wall whenever he dined out in Rome, his 38 revolver within easy reach, C.G. also felt besieged by enemies. She claimed that people in a communist compound near the Harvey's villa would throw rats over the wall into their garden, forcing C.G. to chase the scurrying vermin out of the family dining room. According to C.G., one of her husband's less savory tasks was procuring prostitutes for President Kennedy while he was in Rome. When Jack was in Rome visiting the embassy, my husband had to assign two men along with the Secret Service men who were protecting him. And these two men were required to get Italian prostitutes into Jack's bed, two at a time. I mean, the Kennedys were a lousy group of people. I mean, they were really scum, end quote. Despite JFK's reputation for sexual adventurism, it is highly unlikely that the president would have relied on a notoriously anti-Kennedy CIA officer whom his brother loathed and distrusted to act as his pimp. It was, in fact, Harvey who seemed to indulge in a reckless sex life in Rome. Rumors about his own sexual indiscretions circulated throughout the Rome station, including a story that Harvey had impregnated his young secretary. While stationed in Rome, the Harveys were quartered in a lovely fawn-colored villa on Janiculum Hill, owned by the American Academy. Galileo once stargazed in the villa's gardens. But Bill and C.G. had little interest in ancient history. They spent a lot of time and money redecorating the house. In poor taste, observed Harvey's deputy, F. Mark Wyatt. If the Harveys were the stereotypical ugly Americans, Wyatt and his wife, Anne, were ideal representatives of the U.S., the Wyatts, who had fallen in love in Rome after the war when they were both young CIA agents, were enchanted by the city and spoke Italian fluently. Anne Wyatt took her three young children on rambling tours of Rome, tracking down works by Caravaggio and other masters in galleries and churches, and stumbling upon one of the sets where Cleopatra was being filmed at the time. One night, the Wyatts bumped into Marcello Mastriani in a restaurant and excitedly brought home his autograph. Mark Wyatt, who enjoyed good relations with local officials, was supposed to act as a buffer between the brusque Harvey and the CIA's counterparts in Italian intelligence. But Harvey soon bowled his way into the china shop and began throwing his bulk around. Italy's military intelligence unit, CIFAR, had a long subservient relationship with the CIA, providing the Americans with the results of their spying on po Italian political figures and partnering with the U.S. on Operation Gladio, the Italian version of the secret stay-behind army 
program to resist left-wing advances in Europe. But now Harvey, who saw Italy less as a sovereign nation than as a Cold War battlefield, pushed CIFAR officials to take even more aggressive actions. The CIA station chief urged Colonel Renzo Rocca, a top CIFAR counter-espionage chief, to sabotage the center-left partnership that had gained decisive momentum with Kennedy's visit. Harvey pushed Rocca to use his, quote, action squads to carry out bombings of Christian Democratic Party offices and newspapers, terrorist acts which were to be blamed on the left. Wyatt was no shrinking violet when it came to covert action. He had served as a CIA bagman during the 1948 elections in Italy, handing over suitcases filled with cash to Italian officials in the luxurious Hotel Hostler overlooking the Spanish steppes. Later, Wyatt was one of the main liaison agents between the CIA and Operation Gladio, frequently visiting the secret Gladio headquarters on the island of Sardinia. Nor was Wyatt one of those delicate Ivy League desk heroes who had never risked his own life. He had grown up in the farm country around Sacramento, picking fruit after school for his father's cannery. During the war, while serving as a young Navy officer in the South Pacific, Wyatt's ship was attacked by Japanese submarines and kamikaze planes, and he'd seen men blown to bloody mist before his eyes. But Wyatt had his limits when it came to carrying out Harvey's orders. Not only did Harvey see nothing wrong with violating Italian sovereignty, he saw murder as a legitimate political tool. One day, Wyatt was stunned to hear his boss propose recruiting mafia hitmen to kill Italian communist officials. When Wyatt objected to his extreme suggestions, Harvey would fly into a rage. Often the station chief had been drinking and his jowly face would flush brightly and his protuberant eyes would bug out further like a reptile about to strike. During one angry showdown between the two men, Harvey pulled a gun on Wyatt. Harvey's secret efforts to subvert Italy's center-left government reached a climax in 1964 when General Giovanni De Lorenzo, former CIFAR director and chief of the Carbonari, Italy's paramilitary police, threatened to overthrow the government and arrest hundreds of leftist politicians unless socialist officials agreed to abandon their reform proposals and accept a weaker role in the coalition government. The elderly Nenni, who had suffered exile and imprisonment under Mussolini's regime, harbored deep anxieties about a fascist revival in Italy, and he quickly gave in to General Di Lorenzo's demands. Wyatt later insisted that he had no involvement in the coup plot, but Di Lorenzo was widely considered a stooge of the CIA, and there is little doubt that Harvey played a role in the blunt and successful effort to intimidate Italian democracy. By then, Kennedy was dead, and could not protect Italy's fragile political experiment as he had intervened against the French military putsch in 1961. Another very interesting story, by the way. When Nenny anxiously asked Schlesinger, who visited Rome in spring 1964, whether the new American president, Lyndon Johnson, could be counted on to continue JFK's Italy policies, Schlesinger had to give the old man the, quote, chilling truth. Mark Wyatt, Harvey's deputy, was attending a meeting at the Gladio base in Sardinia with Bill Harvey when he heard that President Kennedy had been shot at high noon in Dallas. When the telex arrived in the early evening local time, Wyatt found Harvey collapsed in bed following a late afternoon round of martinis. After Wyatt managed to rouse him, the CIA station chief blurted out some provocative remarks about the events in Dallas that deeply disturbed Wyatt for the rest of his life. According to his three children, Wyatt, who died in 2006, 
at 86, would always suspect that Harvey had some prior knowledge of the Kennedy assassination or was in some way involved. Quote, my dad would sometimes talk about Harvey in the context of the Kennedy assassination, said Wyatt's son Tom. He talked about the connection between Harvey and the Mafia, not just his involvement with Johnny Roselli, but with the Mafia in Italy. Those connections in Italy worried my father a lot, end quote. Wyatt's suspicions about his Rome boss were so strong that his daughter Susan encouraged her father to testify before the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. Quote, my father really believed in CIA. He really wanted to believe in it, and he was loyal to it, despite all its flaws, Susan recalled. And he really didn't want to do things that would hurt it. But Wyatt continued to be haunted by Harvey and the Kennedy assassination laid into his life. In 1998, when a French investigative journalist named Fabrizio Calvi came to interview Wyatt about Operation Gladio at his retirement home on California's Lake Tahoe, the former CIA official felt compelled to raise the subject out of the blue as Calvi was leaving. Quote, as he was walking me out to my car, Wyatt suddenly said, you know, I always wondered what Bill Harvey was doing in Dallas in November 1963, Calvi recently recalled. Excuse me? said the stunned French journalist who has written books and produced television documentaries about the history of U.S. intelligence and who realized that Harvey's presence in Dallas that month was extremely noteworthy. Wyatt explained that he had bumped into Harvey on a plane to Dallas sometime before the assassination, and when he asked his boss why he was going there, Harvey answered vaguely, saying something like, I'm here to see what's happening. When Calvi tried to pursue the conversation with Wyatt, he cut it off as abruptly as he had started it and said goodbye. Calvi himself forgot about Wyatt's intriguing remarks until years later. CIA officials later talked about Harvey's stint in Rome as a sad exile for a once illustrious agent a drunken last stand before his shameful exit from the agency. But that's not how Harvey himself or his deputy regarded his disturbing Rome interlude. Harvey still saw himself at the center of action, crawling through the criminal underworld, stockpiling weapons, conspiring with Italian security officials, in short, doing whatever was necessary for the cause of freedom. As for Wyatt, he saw his boss as a dangerous character rather than a figure of pathos a man whom he would always suspect had a deeply sinister connection to American history. In the 1970s, Bill Harvey felt he was being hung out to dry by the agency. When he was grilled by the church committee about his involvement in the CIA's various plots, as Harvey prepared to testify, the words circulated in Washington that he was, quote, a rogue. Like Kurtz in Heart of Darkness, he had gone native. His thinking had become unsound. Harvey knew that he wasn't one of them, the Fifth Avenue Cowboys. Long after he was gone, his family still resented them for how they had treated him. They, quote, threw him under the bus, said his daughter, Sally. Harvey's widow, C.G., was bitterly aware of the CIA class system. Quote, Bill always had very good opportunities for travel and learning, she said, still defending her late husband against the agency's prejudices. And for these people to turn up their noses and say that Bill was from nothing just because he graduated in law school at Indiana University always made me feel that they were jealous and that they really couldn't carry his briefcase when it came to intelligence. Bill gave his life to this country. All the stories that came spilling out of the agency about Harvey's wild ways, his love of guns, his fondness for birdbath-sized martinis, his eruptions of black fury at the Kennedys, they were all meant to show he was the type who could blow his top and do anything. But Harvey's consistently glowing CIA fitness reports tell a different story. 
There was nothing rogue about Bill Harvey in these pages, and thank you to Jim Lazar for this. He was portrayed as a dedicated and highly valued professional. Even after Harvey had enraged Bobby Kennedy with his Cuban antics, he continued to win enthusiastic reviews from his superiors. Quote, it is difficult to prepare a fitness report on this outstanding officer, largely because forms do not lend themselves to measuring his many unique characteristics. That's for sure. <laughs> Be began Harvey's October 1962 report, which cited his, quote, professional knowledge, toughness of mind, and firmness of attitude. Harvey, the report concluded, is one of the few distinctly outstanding officers in the CIA's covert department. Likewise, after the violently inclined Harvey alarmed Mark Wyatt, his Rome deputy, so severely that Wyatt asked to be transferred home, Harvey's performance continued to be rated, quote, outstanding by agency officials. Harvey's March 1965 report commended, quote, his determination to accomplish his basic objectives regardless of the obstacles which he encounters, end quote. The Rome station, the report went on, must be guided with a strong hand, which Mr. Harvey is well able to supply. Dick Helms had sent Wyatt to Rome to help keep an eye on Harvey, but when Wyatt was recalled to Langley and he told Helms about the extreme methods that Harvey was employing in Rome, the CIA did nothing to discipline Harvey. Instead, it was Wyatt who found his career stalled. Harvey always vehemently denied that he was a reckless maverick. Testifying before the church committee, he insisted that he had never done anything that was, quote, unauthorized, freewheeling, or in any way outside the framework of my responsibilities and duties as an officer of the agency, end quote. The truly alarming thing is that Harvey was probably telling the truth. But the men who had authorized his extreme actions were quite willing for him to take the blame. Like Howard Hunt, he was, quote, an easy target for the spymasters. Bill Harvey and Howard Hunt both prided themselves on being part of the CIA elite. But that's not how these men were viewed at the top of the agency. Hunt called himself an Ivy Leaguer, even though he had gone to Brown, which wasn't quite the same thing to quote the very best men at the CIA. Hunt liked to brag that he had family connections to Wild Bill Donovan himself, who had admitted him into the OSS, the original roundtable of American intelligence. But it turned out that Hunt's father was a lobbyist in upstate New York, whom Donovan owed a favor, not a fellow Wall Street lawyer. Everyone knew Hunt was a writer, but they all knew he was no Ian Fleming. To the Georgetown set, there would always be something grubby about men like Hunt and Harvey. The top men at the CIA had very high regard for themselves. They thought they were a breed, a breed apart, educated, refined, valiant, a knightly order engaged in a righteous crusade. It was men like Dick Helms who belonged to this order, son of an Alcoa executive, grandson of an international banker, educated at the exclusive Le Rossi boarding school in France, where he came to know the future Shaw. It took a genetic sense of entitlement and years of proper breeding to make men like Helms or Dulles. And the sons of Albany lobbyists or Indiana single mothers were simply not cut from this silk cloth. On receiving the William Donovan Award at the Veterans of the OSS Dinner in 1983, Dick Helms stood up and told a story which summed up these men's formidable self-pride. His son Dennis once had a summer internship at the CIA, Helms told the gathering. After work one evening, Dennis said, Dad, you are very lucky to be working at CIA. Why, Helms inquired. Helms told the banquet he had never forgotten his son's answer, because the people there are so civilized. But men like Hunt and Harvey did not belong to the civilized circle, and killers like David Morales were kept even further 
from polite company. The CIA was a brutal hierarchy. Men like this would never be invited for lunch with Dulles at the Alibi Club or to play tennis with Dick Helms at the Chevy Chase Club. These men were indispensable until they became expendable. Hunt didn't figure out how these civilized men really saw him until it was much too late. Quote, I thought mistakenly that I was dealing with honorable men, he said near the end of his life. Hunt, Harvey, and Morales were among the expendable men sent to Dallas in November 1963. But the most expendable of all was a young ex-Marine with a perplexing past named Lee Harvey Oswald. Thank you. All right, well, that was fascinating. Uh, Doug, are, are you still around? Why, well, yes, I am, sir. Oh, oh, thank God. I kind of feel bad, Graham, that this stuff, we're talking about things in the 60s, 30 years before you were born, which for me takes it back to, like, you know, I think the Hoover administration. So this isn't going to resonate with you and your generation, but history is important, so let's, let's talk about it. Okay. Uh, the book is about Alan Dulles. That chapter that David read, was uh, Dulles was not the... Uh, sort of was not the main feature, I would say, but, but he undoubtedly fills hundreds of pages with uh, stories about Dulles, who was part James Bond and probably part James Bond villain as well. So why do you think this is important? Well, we look back at who was running the country in, in the 60s and, and who ran the country in the generations before that. I, I would say that it was probably a lot of the same folks and it's a lot of the same folks today. And that the, I think that the dynamics he's talking about there of the CIA getting involved and running, you know, covert operations in Italy and blowing things up and causing mayhem to achieve the goals, not necessarily the American public, but of those who, you know, are the powers that be that sponsor the good people that are Team CIA. You know, in years past, we've tried to talk about um, covert and less than covert operations, and the list is pretty long. You know, Iran and back in '52, uh, the overthrow of the Guatemalan government in '54, the uh, attempted overthrow of the Castro government, in which Alan Dulles had a major role. And then since then, we've got things like the secret war in Afghanistan and the nonsense currently going on in Syria. So to me, it looks like, you know, same stuff continues decade after decade, sadly. I don't think that's uh, too hard to buy. Well, in particular, given the revelations about the NSA that have come out over the past few years, I think most people uh, operate under the impression, even if they don't know the details, that the our intelligence community is getting up to all manner of shady business on on the regular well yeah my friend it seems to me that the more things change the more they stay the same ain't that the truth oh and by the way just as a, as a uh, aside when you fly to washington you you go to dulles air international airport that's named after alan's brother john foster dulles who served as um, eisenhower's secretary of state so we had the two dulles brothers extremely influential in um U.S. foreign policy, which sounds kind of odd that you, you know, turn that over to a, a couple of brothers. For more information, you can check out the book The Devil's Chessboard. It's coming out on October 13th. And I believe that David Talbot will be having an event or two down in the Bay Area, you know, as he, as he gets this book launched. And uh, I hope to be at, you know, one or two of those. And, uh, man, you ought to come along, too. I'd love to. We have to take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Graham Smith. <laughs> 